Good morning. Hopefully everyone is enjoying, uh, recovering and recuperating from Yom Kippur in the physical sense, but also still living with a feeling of exhilaration and happiness on having accomplished significant things these past high holidays. Today we will be having a special Sukkot class, as this week there is no Parsha that will be read uh, in the normal progression of Torah readings. Instead, we will read this Shabbos about the holiday of Sukkot, and therefore the title for today's class is Living in the Clouds, special pre-Sukkot Shior. Month of Tishrei, this month, is anonymously sponsored in the merit of this learning to bless our family, our children and grandchildren with Torah learning, ease of Shidduchim, Parnasa, good health, Shalom Bayis and Bracha for all in the community. And uh, specifically with a mention of Le'iloi Nishmas Yitzchak ben Zasmin HaKohen and Le'iloi Nishmas Rachel Bas Beryl. I know we join this anonymous uh, sponsorship by this family uh, that the souls of Yitzchak ben Zasmin HaKohen and Rachel Bas Beryl should definitely be uplifted through our learning today, plus all the prayers of good whether it's for Shaduchim, Parnasa, Good Health, Shalom, Bias, and Bracha, or all of the above, uh, we join them in the davening that that should be for our community and for Klal Yisrael. Coming off the heightened experiences of the days of awe, many of us are likely wondering how to help the progress and inspiration continue, not only through the Sukkot holiday, but throughout the upcoming year. Indeed, one of the anomalies of the Jewish holidays is that there are so many of them but between Sukkot and Pesach, there are not so many of them. Now, most of the, our holidays occur between Pesach to Sukkot, as opposed to from Sukkot to Pesach. Of course, a notable exception is Hanukkah that uh, will be just in a couple of months. So obviously, to some extent, the way the calendar is structured according to the Torah is that we are meant to look at Sukkot as a fitting conclusion of the holiday season and somehow a culmination of all of the holidays, not to mention the three regalim, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, that are often grouped together. But indeed, in Parshas Emor, all the holidays are listed, including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, with the order going from Pesach, Shavuos, to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then concluding with Sukkot. And in fact, in the Torah itself, in the paragraph of Sukkot, the Torah has a couple of references to all of the holidays that, for example, can be found in chapter 23, sentence 37. It says, these are the holidays of Hashem that you should call them holy convocations. And that we have an obligation to bring a holidays, uh, I'm sorry, offerings on each particular holiday of various types. That's immediately smack in the middle of the description of the holiday of Sukkot, and then the Torah continues to discuss Sukkot. So that's one major reference in the paragraph of Sukkot to all of the holidays. And then at the conclusion of this paragraph, it says that Moshe spoke the holidays of Hashem to the entire Jewish people. And that specifically means that all the holidays were something that Moshe emphasized every holiday to learn about all the holidays in advance of the holidays and on the holidays. So clearly, 
if that sentence, which references all the holidays and the special learning that happens for the holidays, is contained in the Sukkot paragraph, it must be that somehow Sukkot is really a culmination of all of the holidays combined. So in today's discussion, we're going to discuss how that occurs in terms of Sukkot and how, in fact, this holiday of Sukkot is meant to cement within us a trajectory of development and ongoing growth. So let's just do a brief overview at the unique features of the Sukkot holiday. Number one, and it cannot be overemphasized enough, sitting and living in a hut-like structure for seven days. It's a simple sentence to say, but everything from the construction of the sukkah and all of its intricacies and the fact of eating all of our main meals in the sukkah and the fact of doing our best to spend as much time in the sukkah, including sleeping in the sukkah, it's a pretty different kind of a holiday observance from every other holiday. It is unique. Number two, taking four species or types of vegetation, a date palm branch called a lulav, a citron called an esrog, myrtle branches called hadassim, and willow stems called aravos. Also very standalone feature, even this concept of taking is a little ambiguous that we take it. It's not so clear exactly uh, how to interpret that. The rabbis, of course, say it means to pick them up, and ultimately the rabbis added to that an obligation to own them as well as wave them around. Number three, Sukkot represents the judgment of our water supply. As the rabbis tell us, Bechag, which refers to the holiday of Sukkot, Nidonin, we are judged al hamayim on our water. Also a very interesting standout feature. Number four, in addition to the seven days of Sukkot, there is an adjunct day called Shemini Atzeres. Shemini Atzeres is an eighth day tacked on to the seven days, and it is a special holiday unto itself, but nonetheless, by virtue of the fact that it's called the eighth day, means that it's somehow attached to Sukkot. And that is unique. We don't have other holidays with these kind of adjunct pieces. Even if in some regard we want to look at Atzeres, which is Shavuos, as a finishing touch of Pesach, it is, after all, seven weeks away, so it's not really the same thing as Shmini Atzeres at all. And then finally, number five, there is an additional, an additional commandment of happiness on this eighth day of Sukkot that the Torah calls V'hayisa Ach Sameach. And on this day, you should be but happy, like kind of emphasizing that there's a unique happiness to this eighth day, almost like you should be only happy, which is interesting because there are no other obligations for the holiday of Shmini Atzeres other than the normal restrict oneself from working, as well as having clean clothing and making Kiddush. Other than that, it doesn't have any standout features. Uh, so it, it seems that this happiness of Shemini Atzeris is kind of the mitzvah of the day. And the question is, what is it about this happiness when in fact there's an obligation to be happy in general on Yom Tov, certainly on the three festivals of Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, so what is this extra happiness of Shemini Atzeres? And of course, attached to that is the overlay custom, the very, very early custom that we have of celebrating the Torah on Shemini Atzeres. Many people think that Simchas Torah is a separate holiday from 
uh, Sukkot, uh, sorry, from Shmini Atzeres, but it is not. It is actually Shmini Atzeres in Israel, where they only do one day of Shmini Atzeres. It is also Simchas Torah outside the land of Israel, where we do two days Shmini Atzeres. Typically, Simchas Torah is celebrated on the second day. There are those that do a celebration also on the first day. But the fact is that it's Shmini Atzeres. Simchas Torah is a later developed custom in the very, very early uh, period, uh, somewhere just post the Talmudic era, there began this celebration that we call Simchas Torah, hence Simcha again is being emphasized, Simchas Torah. So that can't be a coincidence, so let's try to understand the Simcha or the happiness of this eighth day. Now, if not for the Torah mandating these observances, most of us could have barely imagined that these activities would be inherently significant, right? Hard to understand, we're taking the citron, myrtle branches, etc. We're sitting in a hut for seven days. What is going on, right? It seems very difficult to really understand that, um, that these are observances that are significant, not to mention a somehow sequel of the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur holidays, right? What does it have to do to the conclusion of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Indeed, these features are not only hard to understand in terms of their connection and what they inherently mean, but they actually seem some a little strange, maybe a little bizarre. So the question is, is there any way to understand these commandments of Sukkot in practical terms as to their importance and impact on us? And how are they a fitting postscript for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Now, before I get into the um, body, so to speak, of the class, I want to mention that we will, at the end, be talking about the progression of the 10 days of repentance, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, to Sukkot, but that's going to come at the end. For right now, we are going to focus more on Sukkot, and I'd like to begin with a Midrash. It's a Midrash Tanhuma, a Parshas Pinchas, number 14, and it is a very interesting Midrash. The Midrash begins with a quote from the book of Eov, Job, that says, the omnipresent, meaning Hashem, we have not found to be of great power. Sounds a little bit like uh, a heretical thing to say that we have not found to be Hashem. We have not found Hashem to be of great power. Of course, this lies in contrast with what we say every Shmona Esrei, Hagadol, Hagibor, Vanora, Kel Elyon, right? But don't worry, the Midrash asks the question, and yet we have a different sentence in Eo that says it is true that God is beyond reach in His power, meaning that God is unapproachable. He's unreachable. He is so powerful and so mighty. So this seems to be a contradiction. That's the question of the Midrash. And the answer that the Midrash gives is to explain that when we think about Hashem, so to speak, not having great power, that's in terms of what Hashem asks for us to do for him. So for example, Hashem says, hey, I want you to build me a place to live, and it should be you know, 20 feet by 20 feet in the Holy of Holies, um, and that's where I'm going to reside, right? That doesn't seem to be a fitting location for Hashem, who is unapproachable in magnificence, in greatness, and in power. So 
many times Hashem will ask us to do things for him and the portrayal of him in those bequests doesn't seem to be anything that magnificent or outstanding. On the other hand, says the Midrash, in everything that Hashem does for us, it's beyond belief spectacular, right? Which speaks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's great power. So now let's look at some examples from the Midrash. When Hashem asked for, from us to build the tabernacle in the desert, right, it was basically a, a, a structure of curtains. But in the future, when Hashem will reward the Jewish people, he will give us according to his power. And that means, and this is a very cool teaching, that Hashem will make a canopy of, of, from clouds of glory for each and every righteous person, as it is stated in Yeshaya, chapter 4, sentence 5, that Hashem will create over the whole shrine and meeting place of Mount Zion, a cloud by day and smoke with a glow of flaming fire by night. And indeed, over all the glory shall hang a canopy. So essentially, the Midrash is telling us that there will be a canopy that Hashem will make in the future, first of all, generally speaking, but also for each and every righteous person, they will have their own canopy of glory. So Hashem asks for us this very modest structure, you know, from asking a few million people to build this thing called the tabernacle or ultimately the holy temple. But what Hashem will do for us in the future is that each person will have this canopy that are composed of the clouds of glory. Now, there are interesting things that the Midrash tells us about the canopy, but it doesn't pertain right now to what we're talking about, but please, God willing, there will be a transcript this week. Please uh, see the Midrash there. So this is an example of that when Hashem asks for us something, it's kind of modest and doesn't really speak to his power. But when he gives us something, it's done in amazingly powerful fashion. Another example is that when, in, when Hashem asked for us to light the menorah, in the, there's a, you know, very small, you know, candelabra, you know, uh, of light. And yet in the future, as it says, Hashem, just like he led us in the desert with a flaming pillar of fire, in the future to come also, there will be a tremendous light where the light of the moon shall become like the light of the sun and the light of the sun seven times that. So this is an example of the light that Hashem will bestow in the future is unbelievably grandiose and spectacular in comparison to the little light that he asks from us. Another beautiful example is that we being, bring first fruits as an offering to Hashem. That's also not so much, you know, a little bit of the seven species. But in the future, when Hashem will give us of the fruits, it says that all kinds of trees, this is a sentence from Yechezkel 47.12, all kinds of trees for food will grow up on both banks of the stream, their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. They will yield new fruit every month. And the Midrash goes on to say that these trees that will yield new fruit every month will yield different fruit every month. Very interesting uh, connection to Rosh Chodesh, which is specially related to women. Uh, that will be a different time. And then finally, as pertains to Sukkot, when he requested something from them, he only requested according to their power, as you shall, as it says, take on the first day of the holiday of Sukkot, the fruit of a beautiful tree, 
which we know is the citron tree. But when in the future Hashem will give us, so to speak, trees or fruit, it says, I will give in the desert, in the wilderness, cedar and acacia. And instead of the briar, a cypress shall rise. So we bring these, you know, little small tokens of vegetation to Hashem on the first day of Sukkot. But in the end, Hashem turns a desert, a wasteland into a flourishing tree laden piece of land. So the upshot of this medrash is that Hashem considers our recognition of him as though we are doing the same greatness for him that he is planning to do for us. So we build the Mishkan, we get these unbelievable canopies of clouds of glory in the future. We light the menorah, we get this incredible, spectacular light in the future. We bring the first fruits, we get this unbelievable, deluxe, infinitely new kind of fruit every single month. And by taking the four species on Sukkot, we are earning the infinite development of even our deserts and desolate places. So I think that it's appropriate at this time, based on this medrash, to understand that there is a theme that is happening on these holidays that doesn't, it's not only about these holidays, but is definitely highlighted by these holidays, that there's a development of a relationship between us and Hashem, whereby we are giving him special recognition. And because of that special recognition, there is a plan that is being put into place for the future of the ultimate paradise that this world will become. So let's just look at the holidays in the following way. Pesach. What does Pesach represent? That Hashem really exists and really is involved. And we, the Jewish people, are his people. That's represented by many things, but very much epitomized by the Pesach offering, as we've explained, it's a rejection of idolatry, it's a commitment of devotion to Hashem, because Hashem is real and true, and we are his committed people. On Shavuos, we learn of the importance of developing ourselves so that we can have a permanent transformational relationship with Hashem. That's all part of the counting of the days of the Omer, and of course the Torah, which is the ultimate document that tells us of our transformation in our connection with Hashem, that is the Torah representing this concept of a permanent transformational relationship with Hashem. So Pesach Hashem exists, he's really involved, we are committed to him. Then what happens is through developing ourselves and building connection relationship with, with Hashem, we get to this concept of permanent relationship that has the opportunity of permanent transformation this is what the Torah does for us in our relationship with Hashem. On Rosh Hashanah, we have accountability to our king. I don't know if any of you had a chance to see the five-minute video uh, that was posted around. If anybody wants it, please let us know. But it's all about recognizing our accountability. We stand in front of Hashem, our king, and acknowledge the fact that there is judgment and we have a responsibility to act correctly and that what we do is significant. And shofar is the remembrance blasts of our significance to Hashem. So shofar is about the accountability and about the significance that we have in terms of what our actions do and the way that Hashem looks at that and that ultimately we count to our king. On Yom Kippur, we can repair all that we have broken 
and build true intimacy, which is an incredible gift. And that comes through the afflicting of ourselves, what we call the the inoi hayom, the different things that we do to deprive ourselves. And that ultimately yields atonement and the building of an intimate relationship. So this is so far the holiday cycle. We go from the fact that Hashem exists to the fact that we build a permanently transformational relationship with Hashem, to the fact that we have accountability to our King, to the fact that we can repair and have a tremendous relationship of intimacy with Hashem, and then we get to Sukkot. So I suggest that on Sukkot, Hashem is asking us to participate in building a transformed universe. Living in a Sukkah is like living in the clouds, in a world where the kingship of Hashem is firmly established and clearly recognized by all. I'm going to go into that in a moment, but first let's just parse the normal understanding, which is definitely also true and also correct from what we're presenting today. Normally, many of us look at living in a sukkah as going from our permanent structure into the temporary structure. And that teaches us about reliance on Hashem. And that's definitely true. And that's certainly important. But I think that there is a, an added layer that is very important to emphasize, which is it's not only about recognizing our dependence on Hashem, but it's about recognizing that Hashem wants us to live in a transformed universe where the things that we come to normally rely upon, such as our four walls and the roof and many other things, are not part of our future existence. So instead of thinking of the bitachon, the trust that it takes to rely on Hashem, I'd rather us focus today on thinking of the transformation that we have to experience and the transcendence to live on a higher level so that we actually experience living in the clouds of glory. As the Gemara discusses, the Sukkot, which the Torah says Hashem wants us to know that Hashem had us dwell in Sukkot when we left Egypt, is not just because Hashem wants us to know that Hashem takes care of us and that we can rely on Him, but that He actually wants us to live in a transcendent world like we're living in the clouds. And that is accomplished in large part by the sukkah. And now let's talk about the four species. In addition to living in the sukkah, we also have this concept of taking these four different items that are definitely difficult to understand the significance of each one. Yes, there are many allusions to the different kinds of Jews, uh, Jews that have mitzvot and Torah and Jews that don't, plus uh, the eyes, the lips, the heart, and the spine, there are many different illusions. But primarily, when we look just simply at the sentences, what the Torah is really seeming to talk about is that on our harvest season, we're obligated to take these species in recognition of the fact that Hashem is caring for us. Just like Hashem is providing us the other uh, seasons of the year in which we plant, and then we plow, and then we harvest, on Sukkot we gather. And gathering is about the fact that Hashem is interested in our end result in being a joyous one, that we should have the benefit of everything that for which we've worked and that he wants us to have this good. And so by taking these species and being happy in front of Hashem, as the Torah says, we should take them <coughs> and be happy in front of Hashem for seven days, 
The Torah is telling us to internalize the fact of Hashem's caring for us and that what he wants for us is a blissful, joyous existence. And therefore, all of this is a way for us to get to the next level recognition, which is that Hashem really wants us to live in a transcendent world, in a world of his clouds. That's what we're calling living in the clouds. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to discuss the progression from Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah to Sukkot. But before we do that, let's first note that on the first day of Sukkot, in the Haftorah, we read from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, which discusses the ultimate future when there will be the conclusion where Hashem will make it very clear that he is king. For example, the sentence that we say, the day that we say that Hashem's name will be truly one, that will come true on the holiday of Sukkot. And all the nations of the world are actually going to come and prostrate on the holiday of Sukkot in Yerushalayim. And those nations that don't come, for example, the prophet says Egypt, that they don't come, they will not merit rain. They will not merit the good that Hashem is bringing to the world. Because the ultimate way to live in this world with the recognition of Hashem as the true king is to see very, very clearly, not as a matter of trust that Hashem will take care of us, but is to actually experience firsthand living in the clouds and the very clear ways that Hashem does take care of us through the rain and through everything else that he provides for us in this world. That's the type of living that we are trying to get to experience. Some can call it living in the Garden of Eden. And for that reason, my father actually learns that sukkah itself is supposed to represent the Garden of Eden because the idea is to turn this entire existence into a Garden of Eden-like experience, barring uh, snakes and uh, rebelling against God, of course. Right? The idea is to have the 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 incredible abundance and variety and just the exquisite, you know, nature of that garden as is something that we will that we will experience in this world again in the future. So the way to look at all of the holidays with Sukkot as the culmination is that when we properly do Pesach and recognize our devotion and commitment to Hashem who is involved and build a transformational relationship with Hashem, and then make sure that we are accountable to him, and that we do what is necessary to repair anything that we have not done properly in relationship with him, Hashem is actually ready to lift us up to live in a transcendent state in this kind of Sukkot celebration. And that explains, of course, the happiness of Shmini Yatzeris. After we've experienced these seven days, what we need to really take with us from Sukkot to the rest of the year is that the joy and the happiness and the feeling of exhilaration that we get to experience living even just a little bit as though we are living in this fully transformed, transcendent world, that's what we need to be living on the rest of the year. And then, of course, we repeat the cycle in the coming uh, Pesach uh, season. Now, it's also interesting that one of the places that we know that we intercalate the years and that we add month, you know, every three or four years, we add a month of the second Adar, we actually learn from the holiday of Sukkot 
Rashi brings that. So this is one of the major sources because in order for the holiday of Sukkot to be truly the holiday of Sukkot, it has to be in the solar season of gathering. And because of that, we cannot live simply on a lunar calendar. We have to have it calibrated with the, with the solar calendar because we need to experience this abundance, this, this tremendous satisfaction that Hashem wants us to feel from the fact that he is helping us financially be able to gather and celebrate in this time of Sukkot. Now, of course, sometimes that can lead a person to their own sense of ego, their own sense of, oh, I'm the powerful one, but hopefully on the heels of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, instead we get to see it as a byproduct of a healthy relationship with Hashem. So now, in terms of the progression from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to Sukkot, I want to suggest an idea. I actually spoke about this in Yeshiva before Kol Nidre, and I think this hopefully will help bring the whole idea into focus, but more importantly, how to actually carry these holidays forward into the rest of the year. One of the fascinating realities of the entire 10 days of repentance is that despite the fact that everybody is focused on repentance and personal development and growth and fixing all the things that we've done wrong, there is no prescription in any of our davening to recite a private confession. Every confession, every ask for forgiveness is always plural. It's always weak. Not only in terms of, you know, we want, uh, you know, let's say, for example, in the Book of Life, we should all be remembered. In the Book of Parnassah, we should all, you know, be inscribed and, you know, for all the good things. But even in terms of the sin, Asham knew, we are guilty, but God knew, we have rebelled. And every Alchet, Alchet Shechatan knew that we have sinned. And hopefully, many times, these sins don't pertain to us. So not only are we specifically mentioning we in every sin, and hopefully in sins that also do not pertain to us, but on top of that, there is no specific prescription to do a private confession for my particular sin, for my particular wrongdoing. Now, of course, that's certainly better in the Shulchan Aruch rules that that's proper to do, but it doesn't really exist in our communal services. And the question is, why not? And the answer that I'd like to suggest is based on a teaching of a Rambam, which is quite fascinating. This is Rambam, uh, the laws of Teshuvah, chapter two, sentence six. And the Rambam says like this, even though repentance and calling out to God are desirable at all times. Very interesting. It says repentance and calling out to God, right? Those two things need, are linked because repentance is not so that we should feel better. Repentance is so that we should connect to God. So repentance and calling out to God, even though it's always desirable at all times, day or night of the year, during the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, they're even more desirable and we will be accepted immediately as the sentence in Isaiah says, seek God when he is to be found. That's chapter 55, sentence six. But when does this apply, say, says the Rambam? to an individual, meaning the 10 days of repentance are uniquely helpful for a single person. However, in regard to a community, whenever they repent and cry out wholeheartedly, they are answered immediately, as it says, who is so great a nation as the Jewish people to have God close to them that he responds, he is our God, our Lord, whenever we call to him. 
So this ultimately teaches us that the 10 days of repentance are uniquely helpful to an individual, but that the goal really is that we should learn how to become a wholehearted community. And that's why every single one of our confessions, of our prayers for forgiveness, of our prayers for good are in the collective. Because what's really at stake in these 10 days of repentance is can we unify into the community and thereby the nation that whenever we call out to God, God will respond to us. If we can accomplish that, then the entire upcoming year will be elevated and full of transformation. And it's literally incredible to think about how what happens during these 10 days of repentance, everybody goes to shul multiple times to God. Everybody is praying on a constant basis for everybody. We are recognizing that we have a responsibility to help everyone in the community and that indeed other people's wrongdoings are my wrongdoings because the way that I act can impact directly the way that someone else acts. All of this is therefore our sin. We and our forefathers have sinned. If we can really live with this sense of collective caring, collective responsibility, so then it's not only in 10 days of repentance when an individual <coughs> calls out to Hashem that he's immediately answered, but we'll become a wholehearted community so that the rest of the year, when we call out to Hashem, we can be immediately answered. And that's the way to achieve the ultimate transformed world of living in the clouds to where Hashem wants us to be. It's the unity, it's the caring, it's the responsibility for one another that is learned through all the holidays. We have Pesach, Hashem's nation and commitment to him, Shavuos, our infinite transformational relationship with him. Rosh Hashanah, he is our king. But now specifically, Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur, it teaches us how to act as a unified nation of his subjects that are truly integrated with one another, truly care about one another, that then through our prayers, literally through our prayers, we can bring about a transformed world. So it's no coincidence that on the holiday of Sukkot, we are judged for water because water is the source of nourishment for all vegetation. And as, again, the prophets talk about uh, in the ultimate prophecies of what will happen in Yushalayim, there will be a new spring that will burst forth. What will usher in a new world is a new wave of nourishment from Hashem that will be coming directly because of our repentance and our prayers, our desire to connect to Hashem, but not as a group of individuals, only as a wholehearted community that really takes responsibility for one another, that then, just like the Lulav represents the different types of Jews that we are bringing, the Aguda Achas in one group, and which is again a prayer that we said many times in our high holidays, just like the Lulav represents that and our prayers represent that, we will merit the new water, so to speak. We all know that water is actually the basis of clouds. In order to live in the clouds, we have to get to a new source of water from Hashem, which comes about the services of the entire holiday season, especially the heels of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and how we have combined with one another so that when we dive into Hashem, Mashi Faruach, Umarid Hageshem, which is at the end of Sukkot, just before 
um, you know, just on Shmini Atzeres, that's when ultimately the biggest simcha occurs because Hashem will answer with a new source of water, which will lead to an ultimately new transformed world. Questions or comments for today? Okay, everybody give me one second. Uh, Suri, do you want to ask a question? Yeah, I have a quick question. Um, you just made, I, I apologize, I missed the beginning of the share, but uh, the Rav made mention of um, hoping that, you know, we're going to get uh, an answer from Hashem. So there's a concept in like, you know, I know in Hasidic circles, they're like, you know, they'll open the Rebbe's um, to, um Chitas and the, you know, they'll open the chitas and depending on the page, they'll take that as an answer to, they'll ask a query and they'll open, or there's a concept of opening a safer and depending on what the safer says or the line on that safer. Um, or in Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this um, concept of a two-way prayer, right? I write a note to God and then I wait for God to answer. Like, is that, it, it seems similar to what you're saying, but it's, but I always thought it was something similar to Avodah I'm, I'm just trying, maybe I'm not hearing your examples exactly. Maybe you could tell me. Um, like, I, in other words, we're hoping for uh, Kaddish Baruch to be able to answer our tefillos. You know, right. when we ask for something, Hashem should hear us and answer, uh, almost like a conversation. So there are methodologies like, you know, opening a safer to asking a question and opening a safer to a specific page and seeing what the Chumash says on that line or something. People do things like that. Um, is that like a, like a skula type thing um, that people do or is there something to it? I really don't know enough about those segulas. Um I couldn't answer as to their efficacy or uh, you know that that's something to do. But, but this, this we can definitely hang our hats on. Uh, and it's the subject of somebody else's question as well, that the more we actually care for one another and the more that we appreciate uh, what it means to be in a community and everybody uh, doing their part, the more effective our davening is. That that we can take to the bank, the Rambam Paskins that for halacha, and that requires some sort of a communal leif shalem, and that's something that we can accomplish, which is the subject of the other person's question. So, you know, to the extent that I guess, you know, Hopefully, we're trying to get the unity in some places. Maybe Segulos can open the door. I have no idea. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Sorry. Um, but, but you know, as to how to get this uh, level of caring and responsibility for, for one another, especially, you know, when we experience so many um, clearly opposite examples uh, in the public arena, whether it's problems in Eretz Yisrael or other places, I, I would like to suggest the following. One of the beautiful things about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the entire Aseris and Teshuvah is the way that we gather in Shul and how so many different people play a role, whether it's making sure that a person has a seat, has a sitter or a machzer, and uh, leading the services on so many different days and so many different uh, times, uh, plus all the people that are called to the Torah, or reading the Torah, or speaking, uh, plus all the different ways that we try to acknowledge each other and think about fixing our relationships with one another, it really highlights that a community is a very special ecosystem where everybody plays a role. And 
I think that in our davening, we make a very special emphasis of that because there are several places in the davening where we don't only talk about the collective Jewish people, but we talk about us and the collective Jewish people. So for example, we say, all your nation, the Jewish people. God should perform this harmony upon us and all his nation, the Jewish people. So the davening itself is highlighting to us the significance of the group, the community, the local village, so to speak, in which we reside and the way that we impact one another. So if a person wants to know, okay, so how can we get to a better, let's say, overall Jewish people? It always starts first at home. But the simple question is, what am I doing that's affecting someone else directly? Sometimes we don't realize that the way we don't acknowledge somebody, don't smile at them, don't uh, you know, say anything to them that's uh, caring, we don't realize what a negative impact that that could have on that person's day. And that's why it's a sham new. It's not only because I'm responsible for what they do wrong, I'm responsible because I contributed to that. I might have catalyzed someone else's wrongdoing. And if we really take that view of ourselves and we try to imagine how do other people see the way that I'm acting or talking to them, we begin to understand the phenomenal integration that we really have with one another. Uh, like a small example of this, for anybody who has had this experience is always a little bit jarring, is take a recording of your own voice and listen to it. Yeah, that's what other people are hearing. Okay, that's what other people are hearing. Another good example is uh, take a video of yourself doing any activity and say, oh yeah, that's what other people are seeing. So on a much more profound and important level, the way we talk to someone has this incredible way that it is heard and the effect that it has on someone is, is some immeasurable effect. Yeah, a lot of people call this the butterfly effect. You know, the butterfly flaps its wings in Africa and there's hurricane, whatever, across the other side of the globe. Uh, but it's much more profound than that because we really very strongly influence the people around us. And so I'm suggesting that the high holidays are a time when we have to build this healthy effect that we're having on one another because that actually builds the ability to change this world dramatically. If we can integrate with a, as a wholehearted community, we can literally pray and have a major, major impact in how Hashem responds. And ultimately, that's what Hashem is looking for. So the little bit that it, we have the, um, you know, the opportunity to uh, uh, do for Hashem, so to speak, Hashem responds, you know, with crazy, uh, incredible, um, you know, rewards for the future, that's because it's very, very significant, the little bits that we do in terms of recognizing him and how we uh, impact the world. Now, uh, a very, very good question that's being asked uh, to me privately is how can we say that not talking nicely is catalyzing other people's bad behaviors when each person is responsible completely for their choices? The answer is, it's a great question, but the answer is yes and yes. In the spectrum of a relationship, the dynamic is such that each person is responsible completely for their own action, but nonetheless, it makes the landscape of their choices either more difficult or easy depending on how the other person behaves. So for example, if a person 
lives with someone that is extremely moody, sometimes sad and sometimes happy all over the map. How that affects the people around them is real. Now, every single person in that uh, sphere of influence has a choice in how they're going to respond to that moodiness. And therefore, um, they ultimately are responsible for what they choose and why Hashem placed everyone in that situation, only Hashem knows. But the reality is that because in a relationship we care for one another, we try to take responsibility for how we affect the other person as well. That doesn't take away the responsibility from the person making the choice in reaction or response to the way I talk to them, but it does require me to double think and triple think what I'm doing to present the other person either with a easier choice or a harder choice. And just like that, the Rambam tells us that, you know, a person uh, basically has three areas of their influence and one of them is their environment. We can't blame uh, our behavior on the environment, but it's definitely true that it is a factor in what we have to deal with in terms of our choices. So every person has to look on the environment that they're creating for other people, while at the same time they have to hold themselves accountable for how they choose, no matter what the environment is in which they live. If we can take that kind of responsibility for ourselves and for each other, then we can become a wholehearted community. Any other questions or comments? Okay, so then I'll wish everyone a very fabulous circus. Um, oh, just one more follow-up uh, to this question uh, from the same person. How is the moody person culpable in Hashem's eyes? Does it count as a chit against this person in measuring their righteousness? Yes, it counts. The person who's creating a negative atmosphere is also responsible for creating a negative atmosphere. Part of the message of uh, the lesson of Yonah is that Yonah says, I don't want the non-Jewish people of the world to repent because of how that's going to make the Jewish people look. Uh, well, the answer is the Jewish people are responsible to repent either way, um, but it will be worse for the Jewish people if non-Jewish nations repent and the Jewish nation does not repent. Why will it be worse? Because if they choose incorrectly, despite the lesson that they're being given, that is held against them. Yes. So it's obviously a deep subject and maybe more another time. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I am saying that the person is responsible not for the, the person, but making the choice of the other person more difficult. Rabbi? It's a heavy-duty responsibility, yes. Oh, Charles. Um, <laughs> Alekam Shalom, I just want to let you know, uh, I love the uh, topic today. I love the headline. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Spoken like a true pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good one. Thank you. <laughs> but I, I'm sure you're happy to be sometimes on the ground, right? Eh? Oh, for sure. Good. Good. Chag everyone. Go to Bob. Thank okay. you. Uh, we will, yes, God willing, uh, plan to have cheer the coming Wednesday, which is Holomoid. The week after that, we will not. But right now, for next week, we are yes on. And uh, please stay tuned for my father. Uh, just actually zoom over to his Zoom link.